And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Good evening, everybody, or wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding your courage to reclaim that which has always, always, always been in you. Very excited to be with you here tonight and every other Wednesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And each and every other week, these broadcasts are uh, dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all placed within the context of our relationships, the relationships that we have with ourselves. In other words, the person that's staring back at us in the mirror, uh, relationship that we have with others, and certainly our relationship with God or the divine. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It is www.bb radio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity again it's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity and if you would like to call in and be part of the show that number is 888-627-6008 that's 888-627-6008 and i'll be taking your calls after the break and just in case uh, you're unable to spend the whole hour with me this evening, uh, these broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again, or you can go back into the archives and listen to previous shows. Um, and so I am certainly grateful for that. So all you need to do is just to go on the website that I just gave you a few seconds ago and just find the archive button and click on that and then just select the show that you want to listen to. And I am very grateful that many, many people uh, have been able to do that. So, again. Well, uh, for those uh, who are turning tuning in for the very first time, I just want to say that um, I... I'm just a very, very firm believer that uh, all of us uh, come in the world already equipped and graced with everything we need in this life in terms of our giftedness or skills and talents and strengths and character traits, personalities and so forth, and how we live out our gifts and skills and talents and strengths and so forth is in and through various relationships. This is just something that we cannot get around because we are social beings. We are social beings. And so we are constantly from day one in relationships with others. And yet, you know, when you think about this and, um, you know, the work that I do and just, uh, you know, just being a, a trauma mental health therapist and, and the like, uh, just I deal with people who huh, just uh, have received just very deep physical, emotional, psychological, even spiritual wounds in and through their relationships. And the same is true with us, you know, because anybody, again, we could be going along in life, minding our own business, um, 
and due to some un- unpleasant experiences, we end up wanting now then to hide our giftedness or hide our skills or, you know, kind of tone down our personalities or we try to be something that we are not for the sake of others. Okay. Or maybe we just push our giftedness way down so that others cannot see it because perhaps, you know, our, our skills or our uniqueness, what you know is unique about us has been ridiculed and we didn't quite understand the strength that we have in claiming our uniqueness. And so we'd often allow that to be pushed down or, um, you know, we might have hid that from others. Okay. Or perhaps, you know, we were told that we were never going to amount to anything in the first place or whatever other voice we heard telling us that there's nothing special to us. Um, and that's just simply not true, you know, but but still we can discover our, our greatest healing, our, our strength, our peace, forgiveness and yes, love through healthier relationships. And certainly these relationships, you know, just let's broaden our perspectives here. They, they certainly are, you know, within our own families and our coworkers and our friends. But um, I always, uh, whenever I deal with people, I always look at them as, uh, you know, finding the potential for healing in their lives and, uh, you know, just the opportunities for them to be able to transform because whenever we transform from the, that woundedness in our lives and into something better into something more wholesome, and more loving and so forth, we also tend to transform others by our presence, our grace, and our understanding. But you know, first and foremost, kindness and compassion begin with how we treat ourselves, because certainly when we are uh, more compassionate with ourselves, uh, we will soon discover that we can certainly become more compassionate with others. And when we are more forgiving with ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with others. And when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves, you know, that deep, deep, deep gratitude, we then will discover how this really opens up our hearts to see and live in gratitude with others. So all in all, first and foremost, transformation begins with us. Well, how is your heart today? I hope it is well. I hope you are well, and I hope that if you are struggling today, you're going to be able to find the rest and comfort and the inner peace that you need. And speaking of hearts, I hope your Valentine's Day was splendid and very good for you. Okay, it's just something people are all kind of all over the map, uh, you know, the emotional map when it comes to Valentine's Day. Um, you know, some couples like, no, that's OK. You know, we just don't need to, you know, carve out one day, uh, whereas other couples uh, just go all out in terms of the celebration with cards, flowers, candies, you name it. Okay. Well, welcome to tonight's show. Uh, it's entitled, Who Am I? The Thisness of oneness, the thisness of oneness. And in speaking of how and why uh, we may have, let's say, pushed our giftedness way down inside of us so that others cannot see it, and or believing those messages of being told that you would never amount to anything or whatever other voice uh, you heard telling you that there's nothing special to you, Tonight's show really focuses on the superimposed illusions of those negative beliefs that convince us 
that we're not connected to everyone and all things. Okay, so let's start off things. Well, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. This is a cute little story here. One day, uh, a Buddhist was engaged in a walking meditation in the park. And she was deep in her meditation, but still she was able to overhear various conversations from people talking to one another and ordering food during their lunch breaks. And after listening to these conversations, curiosity got the better of her. So she smiled and uh, walked up uh, to the hot dog vendor. And when he asked her what she wanted, she replied, sir, I want you to make me one with everything. And now, to her surprise, this hot dog vendor said, Lady, I can't make you one with everything. In fact, nobody can make you one with anything. You're already one with everything. You just haven't realized it yet. That's a very wise hot dog in vendor indeed. And uh, how many of us, you know, often perceive ourselves as lacking something we already possess? And how many of us fail to see ourselves for who we truly are, let alone continue to search for that person we truly are and are becoming? Well, long, long ago in the Kingdom of India, a play was being staged in the royal court. It was called The Princess of Kashi, one of my favorite tales. <laughs> and uh, the role of The Princess of Kashi was to be played by a little girl. And since there was no little girl in the palace, the queen thought that the prince, who was five at the time, could be dressed up as a girl, and he could certainly play that role. It wasn't a big role, and all the prince had to do was just to stand there. And he looked so adorable as a princess that the queen ordered a painting of him to be made immediately. And when the painting was done, the artist brushed in the words, the princess of Kashi, at the bottom, and then dated it. Well, after some years, the painting was taken down to the palace cellar and stored there. And by now, the prince was a young man of somewhere around 20. He was good-looking, he was confident, smart, and he was being trained in the affairs of the land. One day, while wandering through the palace, he found a set of stairs leading to the cellar, and he decided to explore what was in there. And as he was walking around, he found the, the painting of the little girl dressed up in a royal garb. And underneath it was written, The Princess of Kashi. And looking at the date, he realized that the princess in the painting would be the same age as he was. She was so pretty that the prince immediately fell in love with her, and he decided that he would marry no one but her. Now, as a result, you know, like any young man in love, Okay, he became very dreamy and preoccupied with the thoughts of the Princess Akashi. He lost his focus on his princely activities and responsibilities. And by that time, the king and queen had noticed a change in his mood and behavior, and they grew concerned. And they asked him, you know, what, what's, what's going on? What's wrong? 
but he was too shy to tell them. Well, finally, a kind old minister of the court met the prince and asked him, Dear prince, what's wrong? Why are you not yourself these days? And after gently reassuring the prince that he would keep whatever he told him a secret, the minister was able to coax a reply out of the prince. I'm in love, said the prince bashfully. Oh, that's great news, said the minister. Who is she? Where is she? Well, she's the princess of Kashi. I saw a painting of her in the royal cellar. The date of the painting shows that she would be about 20 years old, just like me. And now I want to marry her. Well, on hearing these words, the minister became silent, and he started to think. He knew he had heard of the Princess of Kashi before, but he couldn't remember where and when. So he asked, uh, Dear Prince, can you show me this painting, please? And the prince took him down to the royal cellar. And when the minister saw the painting, he immediately recognized who the princess was. And placing his hand on the prince's shoulder, this kind-hearted minister looked him in the eye and said in a very serious tone, I have something to tell you. What is it? asked the prince, sensing that something was wrong. You can't marry this girl, said the minister. Well, why not? the prince asked. Is she already married? Is she dead? The minister then told him the story of the play that was staged 15 years ago and how he, the prince, was dressed up as a girl and made to play the role of the Princess of Kashi. Dear Prince, you can't marry her because you are the Princess of Kashi. Well, the prince was in shock and bewilderment as he heard the minister's words. Uh, on realizing the truth that the Princess of Kashi didn't exist and that he himself was what he was yearning for, his desire for the princess melted away. So, in other words, through this story, we realize that he was already one with the person in the picture. He just didn't realize it yet. This prince didn't understand the connectedness he had from the beginning, as he kept seeing himself separate from the person in the picture. So the question for us then is just how well do we know ourselves? How well do we understand that connectedness that we all share? Well, you know, one of the most important questions we ask ourselves at least twice, if not more, in our lives is the question, who am I? Yeah, who am I? Now, according to the developmental psychologist out there, developmental psychology, we first begin asking this question when we are around four years old, you know, in terms of who am I, you know, and, um, you know, we might uh, begin questioning like, okay, who am I? I am a boy, but I have this and she's a girl and she has that and I have a body, I have hair and so forth, two arms and two legs or, you know, whatever. And we ask this question in terms of self-discovery of who we are when we look into the mirror. 
Now, the second time we ask this question in our lives is somewhere in our early 20s, late teens, early 20s, I would say. Only this time asking, who am I, has to do more with an internal self-discovery of how we want to live our lives. I mean, what values and morals have I been raised with? And now which ones do I want to keep? Which ones do I want to get rid of? What's really important to me? And what are some things that are not so important to me? And, and so forth. How well do we really know ourselves? See, knowing who we are is probably where most people struggle to understand striving to be one with everything has, you know, it is just people get tripped up by that. Like, how can I understand oneness? How can I be one with everything when I don't even know who I am? Well, ironically, oneness on one level no pun intended, has to do more with understanding how we are connected to all people and all things. And there's a great example here. Uh, let's say that, uh, you know, you want to add sugar to your morning coffee. Okay. Now, being one with everything doesn't mean that we actually become the sugar that we put in our coffee. But rather, being one with everything or being one with the sugar means that we are connected to the sugar in terms of the people who have supplied the sugar to the store and all the employees who work there, as well as we are connected to the growers who planted and harvested the cane, which would eventually become the sugar that we do add to our coffee. And out of this awareness comes a sense of deep gratitude and respect for all that we have received by the hard work and efforts of others. So realizing our oneness or connection with all things, we ought never take for granted anything in our lives, but rather it should cultivate in us a deep sense of gratitude, a deep sense of compassion for all people who supply things we use every day. And so therefore, everything that we have is a gift. And this makes much more sense to a lot of people, because whether or not we realize it, we are connected to everyone and all things, either directly or indirectly. I don't know if you've ever uh, played the game. I don't know if people still play this game, but back in the day, uh, if you've ever played The Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, uh, it was kind of a fun game, more like a party game, you know, just you get a bunch of people together and just like, okay, you know, you try to follow the connection of Kevin Bacon to other actors and the entertainers or producers or whoever. And so, like I said, it's a lot of fun. You need more than two people to play, I think, if you're going to do it well. So when you think about it, we are interconnected to all things and all people in a kind of a universal awareness. But oneness and connectedness in the spiritual sense goes much, much deeper because it involves who we are at our core rather than who we know. You know interestingly, uh, the last broadcast I was talking about that when it comes to wrestling with life's questions, uh, many people are often overwhelmed not only by the concept that the answers they seek often lie within themselves. 
also the belief that inner freedom, peace, joy, and unconditional love are just simply all too good to be true. That those things belong to somebody else. How can I possibly possess these things? Well, the truth is that we possess the key, you know, to unlock those doors to inner freedom and grace and peace like we have never known before. And again, another question that we have to really sit with and ponder is how open am I to wanting to really know who I am? See, back, oh, I would say medieval times, maybe even way before then, people were very cautious about asking this question, who am I? Not because, you know, there's anything taboo about it or they just didn't know, but they also knew deep down inside that when they started to become serious about, well, who am I? That would take them on a journey inward. Okay. And over time, you know, whether it is within Western or Eastern cultures, you know, when we are ready, effective teachers and mentors and leaders throughout history have been characterized by those who help pull out of others the very best of themselves. So certainly when the student is ready, the teacher appears and the teacher is there to pull out of them the very best of themselves and certainly taking them inward, taking the student, taking the person inward to begin exploring this question, well, who am I? But still, there are many people out there who, out of ignorance and fear, would rather live in their grief and pain and sorrow. And this is not, you know, a judgment. It's just many people are just not ready to begin asking this question, let alone the serious search of who am I? You know, and for many, they're just not ready to let go of their, shall we say, their wounds or their woundedness and embrace the possibility that they can live in forgiveness and gratitude and ultimately love for themselves and love for others. And this is where the term emotional and psychological self-inflicted wounds comes from. Because think about it this way. We think that if we say something harmful or we do something harmful, that it's never going to come back on us. But it does. Every negative thought, every negative thing we say, every negative thing we do comes back to us and often reinforcing the wounded parts of ourselves. And we have many different ways to understand this concept. You know, how many of you have said, okay, you know, what goes around comes around or what you see, what you, I'm sorry, what you sow, you will reap. And even karma is another way to understand that no matter how you say it, Humanity lives in an echo that what goes out from us will return to us, just like we hear the sound of our voice echoing back in our ears whenever we're in a tunnel. So everything we think and say and do is energy. And unless we transform the energy first in healing ourselves by healing our own wounds, it will come back to us exactly how it went out from under, went out from us. You know, the old saying, hurt people, hurt people. Wounded people, wound people. Loving people, 
love people and so forth. And this is the phenomenon that I run into time and time again, counseling clients who want to heal from their past and improve their relationships. Because whatever a person is struggling with from other relationships, more than likely, they're struggling with the same issues in themselves. Okay? What negative energy is being sent out echoes back sooner or later. So, for example, a person who is filled with bitterness from, let's say, a previous hurt or a betrayal will more than likely view everything and feel everything from a lens of bitterness, unless it's healed. A person who has experienced tremendous hurt from, let's say, broken trust in a past relationship, unless this is healed and transformed, more than likely that person will view everything and everyone with suspicion. They will not be ready to trust. And this is very difficult for people to understand about the phenomena of emotional and psychological self-inflicted wounds. What goes out has first come from within. You know, and, you know, maybe you've heard this. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, well, I'm, I'm just not going to forgive that person for whatever, you know. And usually this means I'm never going to be able to forgive myself for whatever. Or I can never trust another person because usually means I have difficulty trusting myself. Or I can't stand it when a person says or does this usually means I can't stand myself whenever I say or do this. And then lastly, you know, I just can't love that person because more than likely, unless that's healed, it's going to sound like I also struggle with loving myself. How we are with others is often how we are with ourselves and vice versa. How we see others is often how we see ourselves. Unresolved, unhealed wounds distort how we view and interact with the world. In severe cases, trauma can be passed down genetically, and it often you know, attaches itself to our DNA, which is, studies have already been proven that. And it often covertly disguises itself as harmful physical, psychological, emotional, and even spiritual symptoms. And, you know, similarly, <clears throat> as gener intergenerational traumas pass down through societies and families, you know, that is what we carry in our genes, how we and are we were raised and so forth, various social systems also galvanize these harmful stereotypes and prejudices, injustices, emotional dependence, biases, so on and so forth. And therefore, intergenerational trauma is not just limited to how it affects our families, but also affects all relationships, from the most intimate to the mere acquaintances in our lives. And this realization is a significant aspect in healing relationships. It occurs when we're able to understand what has so wounded another person and what has so wounded ourselves as to allow us to continuously act out of our woundedness and our pain, and yet expect different results. And I have to say from personal experience that by understanding the background of those who hurt me, it has allowed me to take the necessary steps 
closer to forgiving and releasing the burdens of carrying around my wounds any longer. The same is true whenever we forgive another. We are telling him that we no longer want them to carry the weight of their wounds. We want them to also be unburdened by any weight of bitterness or unforgiveness, shame or humiliation or whatever other pain they have suffered from in the past that continues to influence how they think or say or act in very harmful ways. Well, I would really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about connectedness, oneness, and the story of the Princess of Kashi. It's a story whereby a prince, when he was about five years old, was dressed up like a girl in order to play a part in a palace play. Uh, he then posed for a painting which was labeled as the Princess of Kashi, but the painting was hidden away in a cellar, which he found some 15 years later. And when he found this painting, he immediately fell in love with the girl in the painting, believing that she was probably now the same age as he was. But a wise court minister exposed the truth that who he really fell in love with was himself. In other words, his error was that he believed he was separate from the girl in the picture. But the truth was that he and the girl in the picture were one and the same person. He just didn't realize it yet. He didn't understand the connectedness he had from the beginning as he kept seeing himself separate from, you know, this this picture. And this is where we often see ourselves as being separate from everyone else and all things. And this would be true if all we did was just focus on the externals, you know, whenever we look at one another. But what if we allowed ourselves to see one another as souls? 
What if we allowed ourselves to see one another as souls? I think then we would understand the oneness or the connection that we have with others, uh, regardless of race and class, and creed and culture, stereotypes, prejudices, stigmas, and language. And this is all the more reason why it is important to see the divine in everyone. And when you come right down to it, that's namaste. The light in me allows me to see the light in you. Or another way to put it is, because I see the light in me, I can see the light in you. Because, you know, when we're ready, God certainly opens up for us a profound understanding of who we are as souls. And when we look at each other as souls, we soon discover and we begin to see ourselves as souls and vice versa. We begin to realize that the externals that we are so focused on really don't matter. I mean, when we see each other as a soul, I mean, come on, let's be real here. There is no more sexism. There's no more racism. There's no more ageism. There are no more isms. Okay? They, these isms just can't follow, you know, the language of the soul because they can't hold up to the standard that we are all souls or that we are all children of light. Or more Eastern religions might say that we are all droplets of water returning to the ocean. We're no different from one another, albeit the externals. So why do we have the externals while we're here on Earth as an embodied soul? Well, some people would say that we are an embodied soul because of the karma, because of what our soul still needs to work out in terms of the lessons that it learned, you know, that the healing that needs to take place. And we're often reminded of the wounds and the habits or the choices or whatever that we make is how we're working out that karma. And, you know, these, you know, come to us through the externals could be coming through the illnesses or diseases or other experiences that whatever lessons there are for us to learn, you know, to look at the deeper meanings. Well, Anthony DeMello, I'm not sure if you've heard of him or not, um, just a a fine author, Uh, Anthony, spiritual author. Anthony DeMello was truly one of those spiritual teachers and mentors who always sought to empower others and bring them to higher states of self-awareness and self-discovery. Remember, who am I? And he often told a story to illustrate that we can let go of former things in order to take hold of something better. It's a story of a, a villager in India who happened upon a sannyasi. Now, uh, sannyasi is a wandering, enlightened one, you know, a person who, having attained enlightenment, understands that the whole world is his home, the sky is his roof, and that God will look after him. And so a wandering sannyasi moves from place to place the way you and I would move from one room of our home to another. And uh, this uh, villager says to the sannyasi one day when their paths cross, I simply cannot believe this. And the sannyasi says, what is it that you can't believe? Well, the villager says, 
I had a dream about you last night. I dreamt that God said to me, tomorrow morning, you will leave the village around 11 o'clock and you'll run into this wandering Sanyasi. And here, now I've met you. Well, what else did God say to you? asked the Sanyasi. And the villager replied, he said to me, if the man that you meet gives you a precious stone he has, you will be the richest man in the whole world. Would you give me that stone? The sannyasi tells the villager to, well, just wait a minute. And he starts to rummage around through his knapsack and he retrieves an object. Would this be the stone you're talking about? The sannyasi asked, handing it to the villager. And the villager could not believe his eyes. See, it was the largest diamond in the world. He holds the diamond in his hand and he asks, uh, could I have this? Of course, said the sannyasi. Take it. I found it near a river. You're welcome to it. Go ahead, take it. Well, the villager took the diamond and he quickly ran away and, and he grew tired and he went to sit under a tree on the outskirts of the village where he clutches the diamond to his heart and he experiences great joy. You know, the kind of uh, uh, the joy like we experience when we, we finally get something we really wanted, you know, but once we have that thing that we have been searching for or something that we really wanted, do we ever stop to ask, well, how long is that joy going to last? I mean, think about it this way. You finally got the girl you wanted, right? You finally got the boy you wanted. You finally got that car that you've been saving up for. You finally got that degree. And you were top of your class. Yet how long does that joy last? How many seconds? How many minutes? How many days? You know, eventually you get tired of it, don't you? Because the newness has worn off. And then you're off looking for something else, you know, to kind of replace the joy that's kind of faded. So the villager sat under the tree all day, clutching this diamond, and he became immersed in thought. And he was troubled. And so toward evening, he, you know, went back down to the river where the sannyasi was meditating, and he gave him back the diamond. Master, he said, could you do me one more favor? What is it? said the sannyasi. Can you give me the inner riches that makes it possible for you to so easily give away this thing that would have made you the richest man in the world? Letting go of former things in order to take hold of something better. See, if we're capable of, shall we say, sending out negative energy from unresolved emotional, physical, psychological, and spiritual wounds, then we can also send out through our thoughts, our words, and our actions, positive energy. 
positive energy that gives life and healing and grace because they come from those places of woundedness within us that have been healed and transformed. But you know, still, there is a lot of talk these days, still a lot of talk about reducing our carbon footprints from eliminating greenhouse gases and industrial emissions and the effects of mining to global warming debate and conservation. Yet what I don't hear, even to this day, what I don't hear included in these debates and conversations is how the damaging effects of our carbon footprints clearly mimic the damaging effects our interpersonal footprints have on one another. Because sadly today, it's often considered the norm, if not the expectation, that people will walk all over one another to lie, to cheat, to steal, and then expect that these actions will have no psychological or spiritual consequence. Well, if we assume this, we're gravely mistaken. You know, and certainly as evidenced from our attitudes and actions that we have not learned from previous generations as discoveries and mistakes. We clearly do not possess the ancient wisdom that comes from recognizing those lessons of respect and dignity and value and gratitude that have been passed on to us in the created order of things. Or let's put it another way. It ought to be glaringly obvious that the way we treat our environmental resources and animals is a direct relation of our attitudes and behaviors towards each other. In fact, despite all of our searching for the psycho-spiritual wholeness, we don't possess such wisdom because we do not understand how we are spiritually and emotionally fragmented. However, it's from this understanding that we can also recognize the opportunity that is before us to be able to heal this relationship to ourselves, others, and certainly the land. And from those, uh, for those, I should say, who seek a heightened psycho-spiritual awareness, uh, the land, and certainly the mountains, let's just say, you know, the mountains, have a lot to teach us about the interpersonal and intrapersonal relationships. You know, and for those of you who love to go hiking, love to hike mountains, you know, standing at the base, you know, mountains remind us just how small we are in comparison. And as we hike or as we climb, we are struck by the beauty and splendor of life that surrounds us. And maybe we reach the top, you know, and when we do, many people sense a stronger connection to themselves and God, as well as a, you know, a perceived, a greater perspective of the world below. And I think in those moments, we have a greater awakening of how our uniqueness has been gifted by God, as well as our growing edges and vulnerable areas that we have yet to surrender to God. In this sense, we are overcome with a sense of gratitude and understanding. And even though we may not know what we might discover about ourselves, people continue to seek God with the help of the land, of the mountains, of the sea. 
And moreover, whatever we experience can be a powerful psycho-spiritual transformation that leaves us unlike we were before. You know, and yet here lies the irony of humanity. Um, you know, his, history has certainly demonstrated, just for example here, how some people are only drawn to mountains to be able to extract their minerals, but they're not drawn to people. In fact, people will often sell their souls for all the natural resources that they can procure, while at the same time throwing away the most important resource of all, namely relationships that have been established by a loving creator's hand. See, this uh, psycho-spiritual disconnection is something that the land doesn't forget. Indeed, the land remembers. Souls and souls have trekked the land for countless generations. The air they breathe is the same air we breathe. The same sources of water from which they drank, we drink. The same mountains they have climbed for a psycho-spiritual renewal, we climb today. These literal and spiritual paths have been blazed for us to follow, and our imprint does not go unnoticed. As we walk in the footprints of, let's say, our ancestors and relations, as a great cloud of witnesses, they carefully, carefully, yeah, I'm sorry, they carefully, there we go, observe our attitudes and our actions. Yeah, the land remembers. Through the countless violence and aggression throughout history in which the stain is communicated. Even the blood of those who laid slain cry out from the land, which is imprinted with the horrors of genocide and desolation. We may attempt to forget about these tragedies as the so-called history books are written from a, a softer perspective that romanticizes the harsh reminders of the depraved human interaction. The land remembers. However, the echoes of pain and suffering tell us that their stories need to be heard and told. As one Lakota man puts it, I listen to the screams of the wounded and the dying, carried on the wind across the prairie, blood spilled in the ground. We forget about these things, but the trees they remember. The rocks, they remember. And the earth, it remembers. They remember when we forget. The story is forever imprinted, imprinted on this land. But if we listen, they will guide us. They will give us visions, tell us stories. Past, present, and future all touch one another. Time does not exist. For spirits, time does not exist. Can you hear them? Can you hear their cries? See, sooner or later, we have to return to our daily routines and discover new ways to live out a psycho-spiritual transformative experience. And this all brings us back to relationships and getting to know who we are. 
And as much as we may have experienced an exhilarating psycho-spiritual transformation, the irony is that these life-changing moments are not necessarily for ourselves. Indeed, just as strong as the experience of a psycho-spiritual transformation is, we are then called to transcend these, let's say, mountaintop experiences by getting beyond our self-serving attitudes and codependent behaviors and embrace our mutually shared connection with one another. There's also the power of reflection and surrender, forgiveness, and sowing the seeds of peace and growth. Folks, it all comes back to relationships. It all comes down to, are we ready to ask the tough questions of ourselves? Who am I? Who am I in relation to myself? Who am I in relation to others? Who am I in relation to God or the divine? We have to transform the negative energy of those negative thoughts, the pain and the suffering that is still out there. Energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. Physics tell us that much. The same thing is true with mental energy, emotional energy, physical energy, and certainly spiritual energy. Transformation is possible. Healing is possible. It takes time. It's a process. Or I'll leave you with uh, this quote from one of my favorite authors, Paulo Coelho. He says, the energy of hate will take you nowhere, but the energy of forgiveness, which manifests through love, will manage to change your life in a positive sense. I'm Dr. James Halk, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you to join me in two weeks on uh, Wednesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for another broadcast right here on bbsradio.com. Take care. Good night. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding around to buy a book by Dr. Hauk. It's all there. Just wander over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific, on BBS Radio TV.